This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. This month, we've got a special bonus-length podcast commemorating 20 years since the birth of Dolly the sheep, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell. Her birth changed the scientific world and led to the development of other transformative technologies. She made biologists think differently because we showed that cells can be changed. So I may be the father of Dolly, but I think I'm the grandfather of IPS cells. Plus, our gene of the month is keeping a straight face. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for September 2016 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I was at university when I first saw the issue of the journal Nature sporting a rather surprised-looking sheep on its cover. Announced to the world in February 1997, the birth of Dolly the sheep rocked the world. Her birth actually came a few months earlier, in July 1996, so to celebrate, the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, where she was cloned and born, and the MRC Centre for Regenerative Medicine decided to throw a party or rather, a scientific symposium, in her honour. I was lucky enough to be able to go along, and even more lucky, to be able to speak with Sir Ian Wilmot, who led the team responsible for the creation of Dolly. I started by asking him to explain the history of the research leading up to her birth. The very earliest experiment was trying to answer a biological question as to whether, essentially, all of the cells retain the same DNA during the course of development, because there was a suggestion, a hypothesis that development was brought about, differentiation was brought about by the loss of uh, sequences which were not important for a particular tissue type. And that series of very simple experiments were done to address that question, and the answer was there was no evidence of DNA being lost. So this is the idea that that somehow cells are shedding genes as they're making decisions to become Mm. brain or or muscle. exactly. What was the key experiment that showed that couldn't be the case? The nuclear transfer experiments which were done by Briggs and King and subsequently by John Gurdon demonstrated that you could take differentiated cells from tadpoles and produce adult uh, frogs from them. So that clearly showed that those differentiated cells still had all of the information necessary to control development. But they never managed to go from an adult cell to another adult. That's a really intriguing point. I think you can only suggest that there must be something different in the way in which gene expression is regulated and and that whereas we have methods which overcome these now for early stages of development, we haven't yet got that for uh, adult frogs. So that was frogs, and you thought, okay, let's try this in in sheep. Why sheep? What was the background to that? We got started because I heard that Willardson had cloned from blastocysts in cattle. What I was looking for was a way of having cells which you could, could culture for a while to allow allow you to make precise genetic change and then use as nuclear donors. And it seemed if he, if he was growing cells from blastocysts and then cloning from them, that maybe we were reaching that point. So that's taking cells from a very, very early embryo, yeah. putting them into an egg and making another animal. So the yeah. idea was, can we do this from cells in a Petri dish? Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
And tell me first then about Megan and Morag, because those were actually sheep before Dolly. Where did they come from? They came from cells which had been cultured with the, with the hope of getting embryo stem cells by my colleague Jim McGuire. What he found was that not that the cells multiplied vigorously and differentiated, but, but the cells that we were looking for simply ceased to be there. They just disappeared. So we did an experiment taking nuclei, taking cells from different days of culture to, 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 to try to see whether we could confirm this interpretation by having success with probably about day nine embryos, but if we went through to day 10, day 11, then they'd lost the ability to support normal development because they'd either disappeared or changed. So Megan and Morag were sheep that were cloned from these very yeah. early embryo cells. Then what about... Dolly, tell me about her biological history. Well, the classic thing for developmental biologists to do when they're studying these sorts of mechanisms is to look at um, the very earliest stages, fetal tissue, and then adult tissue. So we always had it in mind that we would progress along that um, sequence of development. Um, as you say, we'd worked with early stages, we worked with fetal cells, and then we, because we'd been successful with both those early stages, we started with adult tissue. Yeah. And what was the adult tissue that you used to, to clone Dolly? It was mammary tissue. Our collaborators, PPL Therapeutics, you may remember, had a project to make sheep that produced in their milk proteins needed to he- treat human disease. They were growing mammary cells in the, the lab as part of that, that project, so they, they knew how to grow them. They knew that they had a, a normal carrier type and were likely to be suitable nuclear donors. So then to create Dolly, just if you can really briefly explain the process, how, how does it work? What is cloning? How does it work with, you, with an adult cell? You need, you need two cells. You need an egg from which you remove the genetic information, the chromosomes, and you need a nuclear donor which will provide the nucleus that controls development. Um, so in the case of, uh, of Dolly, this was a mammary cell which was in culture, which, which was used and proved to be able to control development. Presumably people had tried to clone from adult cells and it hadn't worked. Why did it work with Dolly? What was special about those experiments? I don't know if anybody actually had tried adults in mammals. They, what, what happened to, to people, I think, was that they tried with very early stages and it worked, but as you began to work, work with, with cells from partway through pregnancy, it didn't work, so there was no point in going through to adults. So just, it's not worth bothering trying. It's not going to go, yeah. (laughs) What did make the difference that that seemed to make it work? Right. What we did as uh, preliminary work was look at the best way to coordinate the cell cycle of the two different cells. And we we came forward with a scheme of using cells which had, donor cells which had been serum-starved in order to make them quiescent. So this is kind of just put them to sleep, basically? Yep, Yep. exactly. Um, And oocytes which were at metaphase 2, um, because we knew that they had a great potential to stimulate a transferred uh, nucleus to enter into the cell cycle in such a way that it might well be also be able to reprogram the expression of genes in the nucleus at, at the same time. So you've kind of you've got the donor cell that's that's quiet; it's all asleep; it's not doing anything, and you've got an egg cell that's really ready to go exactly for it. That. That's the key. That's exactly it. Yeah. And when when Dolly was born, how did you feel? That must have been incredible. Oh yeah, I mean, we, I mean. I think we were almost shocked because it was, it was such a novel thing and we knew how important it was going to be both immediately from the point of view of the media and from a career point of view, from the point of view of building a reputation for the group. This may seem like a bit of a silly question, but what was she like? Um, the best way to describe this, I lived down in the borders uh, in among sheep farmers 
And if they have a, a lamb which is not being mothered, either because its mother's died or she's got too many lambs, they take it into the house and it becomes, in, it becomes accustomed to people. And that's, that's exactly what happened to Dolly. There were so many people visiting her, wanting to, to uh, see her, to get her to be in photographs and this sort of thing, that she became accustomed to people. In actual fact, came forward to people, whereas no, as it were, ordinary uh, farm sheep would do that. It, it would automatically turn and run. And what happened to the rest of her life? I understand she ended up having her own lambs. They, they weren't cloned, were they? No, no. <clears throat> she had six lambs by normal reproduction, and they, I'm pleased to say, were all healthy. One of the rules of thumb for cloning is that if, if an animal has an abnormality um, but can breed, then its offspring will not inherit the, the, the abnormality because it's likely to be an inappropriate expression of a gene rather than the loss of a gene, and the reprogramming will restore the function to, to normal. So she became a mum, and then what happened to her? How, how long did she live for? Six years. That, that's quite short for a sheep. Um, but we euthanized her because, uh, sadly, there is a virally induced cancer which occurs um, in sheep, particularly in, in Scotland as it happens, and the, the infection got into the, the flock, and unfortunately there is no treatment for it. So after she'd uh, had it for a number of, of months, we decided it was kinder to euthanise her because the lung, the, what happens is the tumour gets so large that it restricts the animal's ability to breathe and it's then only kind to end their life absolutely and where is she now now she's i think one of the most frequently visited exhibits in any british museum she's in the national museum of scotland you are the father of dolly i suppose scientifically speaking at least what do you feel has been her key scientific legacy and your key scientific legacy she she made biologists think differently because we showed that cells can be changed Many members of your society will know that Shinya Yamanaka was awarded the Nobel Prize because of the work that he did to take advantage of this new knowledge to develop ways of changing cells, of reprogramming cells. He, he says himself that he was stimulated to start the project uh, because of the birth of Dolly, and his work then led to the uh, development of methods to reduce IPS cells. So I may be the father of Dolly, but I think I'm the grandfather of IPS cells. Ian Wilmot there. And in case you're wondering, Dolly was indeed named after the country singer Dolly Parton due to her origins from a mammary or breast cell. Also at the symposium, we heard from another pioneer of biology, Shinya Yamanaka, who won a Nobel Prize for his discovery that just four molecules could convert any type of adult cell back into so-called induced pluripotent stem cells, which have the ability to become any type of tissue. And, as he explained to me, his research was directly inspired by Dolly. So I was a physician a long time ago, and I couldn't help many patients suffering from intractable diseases, including my own father. So that was why I switched, I changed my career from a physician to a scientist, because I thought, I believe it is a basic medical science, which in the future can help those patients suffering from intractable diseases. And uh, I did not expect I would work on stem cells when I started uh, my scientific career. But because of many uh, unexpected results of my uh, experiments, I became interested in stem cells, and uh, here I am now. 
So we're at the, the 20th birthday party, I suppose, for Dolly, who was a sheep who was created by taking an adult cell, putting it into an egg cell, and then you could make a sheep. What did that tell us about cells that we didn't understand before? So Dolly uh, really uh, surprised us how flexible our cells are. Previously, we thought cell differentiation is irreversible. Just one way. You, one go, you way. go from egg to animal, that's exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. But because of the success of Dolly, we learned that it's not true. Uh, differentiation is reversible. They can go back to the uh, embryonic state. So by being inspired by Dolly, I started a project in which I tried to make embryonic stem cell-like stem cells, not from human embryos, but from adult somatic cells. So how did you start doing that? You know, you've got this, these adult cells in the dish, you're looking at them and going, OK, what do I do to you? There was another previous work in which a scientist converted skin fibroblasts into muscle cells just by one factor. Uh, the factor is called myoD. It's a transcription factor. Uh, by simply putting myoD, that factor, into fibroblasts, uh, Mr. Dr. Weintraub was able to convert fibroblasts into muscle cells. So that was another uh, important lesson to me. You know, we could convert cell fate by transcription factors. And also uh, from Dolly, we learned that we should be able to uh, reprogram cells back into the embryonic state. So it's a combination of the two uh, great previous studies which uh, promoted me to initiate this project. Because transcription factors, these are the molecules that basically turn certain genes on. They, they sit on the DNA, they turn genes on. So you've got that part of the puzzle. Then you've got the dolly part of the puzzle that tells us that you can go from one to the other. So then you just have to find the factors. How did you find those, those four factors, you know, your Yamanaka factors, that can turn adult cells back into stem cells? So uh, I... He thought uh, those factors that can reprogram adult cells back into the embryonic state, ES cells, they should play, play important roles in ES cells themselves. So in the first like four or five years in this project, I spent most of the time to identify as many factors as possible that played important roles in mouse embryonic stem cells. So then we just combined uh, multiple factors, which we had at that time, and uh, test them. And very luckily, we were able to identify those four factors. So uh, it was a combination of our hard work and our good luck. How did it feel when you looked in that dish for the first time and you were like, this has worked? Uh, actually, uh, we thought it, it must have been some kind of mistakes, some contamination or uh, some kind of errors. 
So uh, we repeated the same experiment many times, many times, and it worked always. So uh, uh, then we convinced it must be true. But uh, you know, science is very tough. We always, in many cases, we found we did something wrong. So in in this very uh, special uh, moment, uh, we couldn't be just happy. <laughs> we must, we were very Something's careful. Something's got to be bad somewhere. <laughs> so actually we didn't toast. You know. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. You, you did some toasting maybe when you got your Nobel Prize for it? Uh, no, not yet. When we uh, become able to help patients, that's when we are going to have some good wine. Mm-hmm. And so you, you mentioned helping patients because now we can take adult cells. You could take, say, a skin cell from you or from me. You can treat it with these factors. You can turn it into stem cells. And then what can you do with them? What sort of cells can you make from these iPS cells? So uh, at least in theory, we could make any types of cells that exist in the body, like brain cells, heart cells, liver cells. So the potential is enormous. Uh, Of course, at the moment, it's still very difficult to uh, make completely mature heart cells or liver cells from iPS or ES cells. But many scientists have been working very hard. I, I really hope in the very near future, we can do it. I see some things like people using 3D printing with tissues, with cells. Mm-hmm. Is that the sort of thing you could do with iPS cells as well one it, day? It's also possible. It's also possible. So uh, we could use uh, like heart cells, uh, muscle cells, or other types of cells as inks of 3D printers. Uh, at the moment, it's still like uh, scientific fiction, but after 10 years or 20 years, who knows? It may be possible. Another thing that maybe seems like science fiction is that certainly in mice, we can take uh, iPS cells and we can make germ cells, we can make eggs and sperm. Again, is, is that something that could happen in the future? Your mummy and daddy could be skin cells. It's possible. But again, we need to discuss with not only between scientists, but also with uh, gener- general public and also like uh, couples suffering from uh, infertility uh, regarding how much we can do our research. So our goal is to help patients, but uh, scientists alone cannot decide how much we can proceed. So it's a very uh, naive question. I went to university and that first year was when the announcement was made about Dolly the sheep. So my whole adult life as a scientist has been mm-hmm. an incredible time. How does it feel to be working at the cutting edge of, of such an incredibly exciting field? Well, that's one of the reasons why we do science. Science is uh, a of surprise. It's unpredictable. Uh, in many times, it's very tough. <laughs> Scientists mm-hmm. <laughs> are having a hard time uh, almost every day. But sometimes it gives us a wonderful moment. So th- that's why we cannot uh, stop doing sci- science. Thank that's you. the beauty of science. <laughs>
Nobel laureate Shinya Yamanaka from the Centre for IPS Research and Application in Kyoto, Japan. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Katani, reporting back from the 20th Birthday Symposium for Dolly the Sheep, held by the Roslin Institute and the MRC Centre for Regenerative Medicine in Edinburgh. Still to come, we'll be finding out how chickens could provide us with a lot more than eggs, thanks to biotechnology. But first, it's time to hear from another member of the team involved in cloning Dolly. Angelika Schnicker is now Chair of Livestock Biotechnology at the Technical University of Munich, where her research on pigs is helping to change our understanding of human diseases. Well, based on the technology which has been developed with Dolly, we can now genetically modify the pigs. So and this is mainly used at the moment for uh, models for serious human diseases and also for xenotransplantation. And now we also get an area where it's also for agricultural applications. So let's unpick those three different things. Let's start with the human diseases. Why are pigs a good model for human diseases. Lots of people hear about using mice as models, but why pigs? Well, I mean, we have been working with mice for a long time because it was actually the only species where we could do genetic modification in for a long time. But of course, it also had been shown that a lot of results from the mouse cannot be transferred into the clinic. So it was clear we needed some other models and probably the best would be to work with apes, which is not possible. Um, So what else is there which is sort of in the physiology, in the size, and so similar to human, and the end product was it's a pig. And are we talking about big pigs or little pigs? Uh, Mini pigs seem to be very trendy now. Yes, Uh, the big pigs are a little bit too big because they go into several hundred kilos when they're fully grown out. So you work with mini pigs or you can also work with F1s between them and then you're somewhere in the mini pig 60 kilos and otherwise sort of 80, 90 kilos. So quite human. And what sort of diseases can you study in these animals? Um, Principally all sorts of diseases which you also find in humans. So people are working on models for human cancer, they're working for cardiovascular disease, they're working on diabetes, so all the main killers really, plus on top of it now also the rare diseases. So how do you go about studying a disease in a pig? How do you make a, a model pig? Well, we look what experience is already in humans. So do you know what the basis is for the disease? Have also experiments been done already in the mice? And so with that knowledge, we can then really design our pig to have exactly the same genetic difference, your alteration, uh, so that they might get the same disease as what you find in humans. And can you give me a good example of that that you've managed to create in your lab? We work on cancer models. So one of the most common cancer models is colorectal cancer. Another very serious cancer is um, the pancreatic cancer. And so we're making models for both of those. And do they seem to recapitulate what the disease looks like in humans? What we have seen so far, we also have another model for osteosarcoma. So our colorectal cancer is just what you find in humans. It is different from the mouse, but the mouse differs from human. So we find the polyps and the tumors developing in the large intestine, just like in humans in the mouse with the same mutation as in the small intestine. We have the same for the osteosarcoma, so the bone cancer, that um, the places where the tumors appear are the same as in humans, and again, the mouse is different. So it looks like, at least for the tumors, the pig is a good model. 
And then presumably when you're trying to develop new treatments, understand the disease, you've got these animals right there in front of you that you can properly investigate that you couldn't do in the same way with a human. That is absolutely right. So you can take uh, samples from the tumour, you can take samples from the blood, then you can also look for biomarkers to do early diagnosis. Can you see some differences in your blood samples which might indicate what is happening inside the animal in the tumours? And you can do this all the way through the disease progression. You also mentioned another application of these modified pigs is xenotransplantation, which just sounds like something you find in a science fiction (laughs) film. What is it and what's the role of pigs? So xenotransplantation means that you move organs from one species to another. And in this case, it would be the porcine organs or the porcine tissues into humans. So um, most people know that we have problems with diabetes. Diabetes also means that we have a lot of kidney failure. And there's an absolute shortage in kidney transplantation or to cure diabetes in islet transplantation. So if you could now take the kidneys or maybe the heart or the islets from the pig and transplant it in humans, you could cure probably those serious diseases. But why can't we do that already? If pigs are so similar to humans in so many respects, why can't we do that just from a pig? Well, you know that even if you transplant from human to human, you have to make sure that it is a good match. And there are some genes in the pig which are not there in humans anymore. And so there is a rejection of the organ, which happens very quickly. And those genes which cause this very fast rejections, we have to remove from the pig so that the organ can survive. We also have to add some other pigs where there might be a small discrepancy between humans and the pig um, system, maybe the coagulation system or the blood coagulation system. So you're trying to make the pig organs as uh, kind of look as closely like the human organs, at least to the immune system? At least to the immune system, that's absolutely right. How long is it going to be before we can actually have these kind of organs that you could transplant into humans? What's going to be the first step this way? Actually, it's already happening in some ways. Um, You have decellarized heart valves, which are either from pig or from cows, and they implant it into humans. um, But there, of course, you have destroyed most of the cells, so they should not be rejected. The next will be small tissues, Um, for example, the islet cells, because you can also encapsulate them, you can place them, and you could also take them out. These are the cells from the pancreas that make the insulin? Exactly. They are the pancreatic cells which make the insulin. So that would be already quite a step forward. Um, You can also imagine like corneas you could use and then it will be going into whole vascularized organs. They are a bit more difficult, but hearts can already survive in the baboon for almost two years. Maybe one day soon you could be walking around with a, a pig's liver instead of your liver. Well, yes. I mean, you also have to imagine that you might not need the organ for your whole life. But if you had, for example, eaten some poison mushrooms, your liver might degenerate very quickly. So, but it could also regenerate. But in between the regeneration, you might be dead, which would not be a good outcome. So what you really want is maybe sort of an ersatz liver. A temporary short, liver. A temporary liver for the short time that your liver has time to regenerate. I, I'd like one for a Friday night <laughs> when I go out drinking. Oh, there <laughs> you can borrow are. one. <laughs> And the final application you talked about was um, use in agriculture. So could we have GM pigs being used in agriculture? And is that a good idea? And how does that work? In my opinion, it would be a good idea. Yeah, but it depends, of course, what is your target? What would you want to change? We talked a lot about human diseases and how you can help the humans. But of course, we also have a lot of 
um, diseases in the pigs, infectious diseases. And so if you could find out what are the receptors for those infectious diseases, can you alter them so you don't get the infection but the pig is still healthy or the, the sheep or cow uh, makes them more resistant to diseases. So you have something which is good for the animal, something which also will have a better product because you know you can have um, your meat, your milk and so on from healthy animals. So yes, I would think it is a good idea. And is that the same kind of techniques that we've seen, so adding, adding genes in to these animals or, or changing the genes to make them more healthy? So technologies would be the same. So in most cases, you would probably alter the genes which are already there. You would not necessarily have to add new genes. And you have more and more new technologies coming up. Genome editing is one of them, where you can make really sort of very fine, precise alterations of the genome. The world heard all about Dolly the sheep. She was a cloned animal, cloned from an adult cell. Everyone got very excited. But then a year later, there were some other very unusual sheep born. Tell me about them. It was right from the beginning. The reason was why we were interested in the Dolly experiment is because you had cells in cell culture. And so could you also alter the cells in cell culture was absolutely the next question necessary. And so the next experiment was then to introduce transgenes. In this case, it was factor 9, which is one of the factors which is important for blood coagulation. And people who don't have factor 9 are hemophiliacs. And so we wanted to make the product in the sheep, milk the sheep, and then treat the humans with it. And this was then the next experiment, edit the gene to the cells, use the cells to make the animals, and that was then Oli Poly Holly Molly. So that's carrying on with the dolly-type naming theme. It was. Actually, when the animals were born, they were all males, and at the time we won, uh, Germany won in football, um, but the Scottish team was not very excited to name the animals after the German football teams. So they decided on holly, holly, poly, molly. The last question, really. You were one of the team that worked on Dolly the Sheep 20 years ago. What, in your opinion, has been her impact? And really, how have you seen this field develop over that time? Well, if you just talk about genetic modification in livestock, the way we're doing it right now would not have been possible without the experiment in Dolly. Without having cells in culture which we can change and then make a whole animal out of those cells which are cultured, without that, the whole field wouldn't have really developed. And I think another very important point is really that it has inspired people to think differently. So some things which looked impossible before, now they became reality. And it also makes sort of, yeah, looking at something which can be very exciting. Science can be very frustrating, but from time to time you have these little highlights and they sort of spark an interest in science, in, yeah, sort of your adventurous geist. <laughs> Angelika Schnieker from the Technical University of Munich. While there was much talk at the Symposium of Mammals, the Rosslyn Institute's Lisa Heron is working with a different type of agricultural animal, chickens. Although chickens can't be cloned in the same way that mammals can, they can be genetically modified, meaning that their eggs might provide us with a lot more than just a tasty breakfast in the future. Well, chickens are uh, a really useful system. Um, They've been used historically for studying developmental biology, development of the embryo. But they're also, compared to large animals like sheep or cows, they're much easier to keep and you can keep a lot more chickens in the same kind of space that you would keep sheep. Um, They're a lot cheaper to feed as well. 
They have a shorter life cycle, a faster breeding cycle, and um, they're really easy to scale up. And in terms of pharmaceutical production, the egg is a really great system because it produces a lot of protein. Um, you don't need to disturb the hen, really, because you just take the eggs and that's it. And there's an easy way of now making the genetically modified chicken so that you produce a lot of whatever protein you want in the eggs. The other benefits of chickens are that they can make proteins that are behave more like human proteins compared to some cells and some other mammals. And so when you give these proteins to humans as a therapeutic, they are less likely to cause an immune response, a negative immune response, and they're also more likely to be active compared to cells made in other, or proteins made in other systems. So what sort of drugs, what sort of molecules are we talking about here that you could make in chickens? So a lot of the classic drugs that people are familiar with, like aspirin um, or um, paracetamol, these are small molecules that can be synthesized in a chemistry lab. But a lot of the newer drugs that are um, having a lot more success in treating cancers and chronic illnesses are actually proteins. Um, and the very first drug that was actually made this way um, on the, on the med- pharmaceutical market was insulin. So insulin is a protein made by cells in your body. And people who are diabetic can't produce this. And so they used to have to purify it from animals. Obviously, a lot of potential for infections and other problems, and also it's cruelty to, you know, you you have to kill the animals to get the insulin. So they started looking to see whether we could make this in bacteria. Unfortunately, with insulin, you can. It's a relatively simple protein. So they started making it in bacteria, and that way you can have much greater control over the cleanliness of the protein and how safe it is. You can make little tweaks to the sequence to make it more active or um, last longer in the body all these sorts of things. And so once you got insulin successfully used in human patients, they started thinking, well, what else can we make in human pa- for human patients? And um, more and more of these sorts of things have been coming up. So you have um, what are called monoclonal antibodies uh, that target cancer cells. And some examples of that um, are Herceptin, And then you also have things like interferon alpha, which is used to treat um, hepatitis and also various cancers. Um, So you you have all these sorts of proteins, but a protein can't be synthesized. It has to be made in a cell system because it's a very complex biological process and it's a very large molecule. So it needs to be expressed and it needs to be folded properly and some of them have to have sugars added to them and various modifications like that. So you need a more complex biological system to make them. So if that complex biological system is the chicken's egg, how do you get the the genes that make the proteins into the chickens? We use a a system called a lentivirus. This is a a type of virus that is actually related to the HIV virus. And these viruses are really useful because they are able to integrate into the genome of your target animal. Um, They are not silenced like a lot of other genetic modifications that are made because the lentivirus needs it to replicate eventually. Um, But we remove the ability of the virus to replicate. So we're only using the bit of the virus that inserts into the genome and expresses, and that's it. So once you put the virus into the chicken, there's no more virus made. There's not any infectious um, agents or anything. But that puts the gene into the chicken, and that gene is also attached to a promoter, um, which is a bit of DNA that um, tells the cell to make a protein 
in a particular place. In this case, it's the promoter that is used for ovalbumin, which is the protein that is most abundant in eggs, in egg white. And that then drives the expression of whatever gene that we've put in for expressing another protein. And then presumably when the eggs are laid, you just get the egg white and get the protein out the other end of it. Yep, that's exactly it. Um, we just dilute the egg white down and remove one of the proteins from it, which is called ovomucin, and that's the protein that creates the kind of jelly-like structure of egg white. So we have to get rid of that so that we can access the rest of it. And then we can run it down a standard chromatography column. So this is how all proteins are, are separated, whether for research or for pharmaceuticals. And um, because the egg only has about 12 proteins in it, um, it's actually really easy to, to separate out compared to maybe trying to purify something out of a cell that has hundreds of thousands of proteins. How do you know that this works? Are there any drugs that are already made in chickens' eggs? And what other kind of drugs are you working on? Yep, so there are actually three drugs on the market that are made from transgenic animals. The very first one was approved in 2009, and that's from the milk of a transgenic goat. There was another... Um, a couple of years later, which was from the milk of rabbits. And I don't know how they milk rabbits, so don't ask. <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> Carefully, yes. With very small uh, hands. Yes, I just picture some very tiny little uh, milkers. Um, and then just in the last year and a half or so, there was a, another uh, drug that was approved, and that is made in transgenic chickens, which use pretty much the same methods that we do. Given that this seems like an incredible system for making drugs, molecules that are really active in humans could be really useful in medicine, is it then feasible? I mean, in near where my mum lives, there's a nice free-range chicken farm, there's some chickens running around. Presumably you're going to need more chickens than that. It depends entirely on the drugs you're looking at. So some drugs um, actually only require a very small dose, and so you would maybe only need a few hundred chickens, and that would, that would do you for your market. Um, there are others where you would probably need farms of hundreds of thousands of chickens. In terms of the feasibility of that, I mean, obviously you have environmental um, regulations and about having livestock animals. The chickens would have to be indoors. You can't have free-range chickens because they might be exposed to outside you know, infections and things and eaten by foxes and that sort of thing. You don't want that. But the likelihood of using chickens to replace every single uh, pharmaceutical protein production is very unlikely. Um, it wouldn't be suitable for every single kind. So I think that the thing where you're really going to be targeting these is where you need to make a biologic in very large quantities for a low amount of money, but where the dose is, doesn't need to be that big. So one of the things that we're targeting is actually the animal health market, because at the moment, um, animals are priced out of the biologics market because it's too expensive to make and people can't afford to pay lots and lots of money for um, an antibody for their dog, or treatment for livestock animals. So these sorts of things where, you know, you can't afford to pay £100 for a dose for each pig you have or each cow you have. But if you can bring that price down by producing it in chickens, then you've suddenly got a big market open to you where you can treat a lot of animals, you can treat companion animals, you can treat livestock without having to overuse antibiotics or without having to just let these animals die because there was no treatment available before. The Roslyn Institute's Lisa Heron. And if you want to find out more about the legacy of Dolly, take a look at the Roslyn Institute's special website, that's dolly.roslin.ac.uk. Or you can follow on Twitter at dolly at 20. That's dolly at 20. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month. And this time it's deadpan. 
Another of those fruit fly genes, deadpan was first discovered in 1992 for playing a key role in determining whether a fruit fly will be male or female. The gene encodes a type of molecule known as a transcription factor, which switches genes on, and it's involved in many other roles in development of an embryonic fly, as well as just sex. For example, along with other genes called tramtrack, filopod and sevenless, deadpan is involved in building the clusters of light-sensitive cells known as photoreceptors, which make up the repeating units of a fly's compound eye. Although our eyes look very different from a fly's, similar genes are involved in setting up the repeating patterns in a human baby's body as it develops in the womb. That's all for now. I'll be back next month taking a look at genetic testing. What can we test for? What does it tell us? And who could benefit? If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through our Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next time for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>